Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. All right, family, if you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word. My name is Sam Jean-Baptiste. I'm a member here at Sanctuary. Good morning. Good to see you all. Luke 15. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son had got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here am I starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has... uh, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son... The father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
So as Andrew and I were talking uh, about his sermon, he said he was going to be doing the, the, some things on the, on the fatherhood of God, and the prodigal son came up. And um, in my study is uh, this painting that uh, you can't see up real close, but we're going to have it obviously on the screen as well. Uh, some of you may know what this is. This is a Rembrandt. So this is one of my prized possessions. This is my Rembrandt. Not an original, which I probably didn't need to tell you. But for 25 years, this has been on my study. It's one of my prized possessions, and it's constantly used. And so here's, here's the thing we wanted to do before Andrew begins to sort of unfold some of the endless treasures of this most famous of Jesus' parables. Rembrandt, like so many artists over the centuries, artists and poets and architects, and I would say even scientists, have all reflected deeply in their pondering of the nature of God and what God has done in his goodness and his truth and his beauty. And so Rembrandt uh, was a follower of Jesus. He also had his prodigal, rebellious times, and he had his older brother times of cynicism. But late in his, almost his last major painting was something that he had been working on with sketches and so on for 30 years of his life. But before, before he died, he painted the return of the prodigal son. Now, the return of the, the original, if you want to go see it, you've got to go to St. Petersburg, Russia in the Hermitage. It is eight feet tall and six feet wide. And so I just wanted to take a couple minutes and give you a little bit of context for this painting. So when you look at the painting, um, I don't know if we have the full one or not, but on the, on the left is, the, is pretty much the full painting. On the right are some close-ups. Okay. So what's going on here is obviously Rembrandt is taking the whole story of the parable and you, you're trying to put it in one frame which is pretty, pretty amazing, right? But this is like the climactic moment where the younger son comes back after having a time of having his life just wasted. He's longed for all the wrong things. And he comes and greets the father. The father greets him. And you can see this, this place of sorrow and, and just emptiness. And so the father, you can't see this. You can come up close maybe and see this. But it's been pointed out that Rembrandt painted the father's hands differently. One is a man's hand, probably Rembrandt's hand. This is a woman's hand. Perhaps wanting to reflect very visually the tough and tender, the, the, the fatherly and motherly side of God. Also notice that, uh, as, as is the case with painters of this era, they didn't try to paint a biblical scene. They didn't try to put, you know, uh, clothing from Jesus' time they simply did the Dutch clothing, which I think is wonderful because it almost says, okay, folks, you are in this picture. This story is part of you. The other thing I'll just mention briefly is that obviously people always ask who are the shadowy creatures in the back or the people in the back. It could be simply the Pharisees. It could be the, the community that's sort of judging this boy who's come back. It could be the mother in the background. But notice the highlight where the light is focused. It's obviously on the father uh, embracing the son. But also, who's the, who's the person on the right where the light is on, which is the higher, taller person? Who's that? The older brother. 
Rembrandt does something in this painting to draw attention to, to perhaps the most forgotten or underemphasized part of the parable, and that is the older brother. He paints them with noticeable distance. The older brother is looking down not only on his brother, but on his father. He, of course, represents, as you may know, the, the religious leaders who didn't like the idea of Jesus hanging out with less reputable people. So that's what's going on in that picture. And it's just a, a beautiful expression in one frame uh, of the love and the mercy and the uh, incredible love of the Father. Lyle Mook, who also doubles as an art critic, along with all the other amazing things he does. Thank you, Dad. Um, if you don't already have this passage open that Sam read to us, I just encourage you to open that up. And we are going to just park out here for a few minutes. I asked the team, if they would just leave this up. Jesus tells this story when, as my father just mentioned, as, uh, as an answer to the question like, why, Jesus, are you hanging out with who you're hanging out with? Why are you acting the way that you are acting? Why are you spending your time the way that you are spending your time? Jesus has got all these big claims. These claims that throughout Christian history just get, like, intensified. I'm showing you what the divine is like. I'm showing you what God is like. I'm showing you what the love and logic behind everything is like. This is his claim. And so it's so unbelievably fascinating. And I love this about Jesus as he answers with these stories. Because a, a parable is what they're called. They're, they're not there to just provide information about our world. If we allow them to do their work within us, what it does is actually help us engage. It doesn't just um, share like some information about what we should do. It invites us into the story. And these three characters, I think these three characters are more relevant than ever to us. We have the younger son. In ancient patriarchal societies, sons were incredibly important, incredibly important. They were the ones who would inherit the land and the money and most importantly, the honor. Respecting one's father was everything. Like every time anybody teaches on this passage, there's like a, a, a prerequisite, like sort of preface that has to be given. This will be hard if you had a really tough relationship with your dad. You've probably already struggled if you've been walking with the Bible at all with all of this father language, father language, father language. 
But it is that very fact I just want to encourage you to consider, the very fact that it, 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 it might bring something really difficult up for you. That, that ache right there reveals that actually there's something more perfect that you long for. You know that there is a good father. You know that. And so when this father language and son language comes up again and again in scripture, it's not actually about gender at all. It's about inheritance. Inheritance. This was the culture where everything would revolve around the good father. Fathers were revered. And so whatever in your culture, the ways that like a bad rap has come around fathers or come around the patriarchy, this was where the life and provision was. And it, it actually is so important that we leave this language in because if not, we actually miss what's really being said in these texts. The younger son, the younger son has just dishonored the patriarch, dishonored dad. So many historians have pointed out that the audience would have gasped at this insult or just would have been like, this is so foolish like classic foolish teenager, however old the kid is in Jesus' imagination. But then it gets really strange because when the younger son goes and he says, Dad, I just, I, I, I frankly wish you were dead, <laughs> which is the equivalent of what he's saying. Like, I just want you for your stuff. That's the, the inheritance that I might get later, that I'm gonna get a portion of later. Just give it to me now. I'm done with this. We don't know why he goes, but the interesting thing here is the father actually does something that is so shocking. And any of you have heard this story again and again throughout scriptures. I'm sure the shock has worn off. But the shock here is that the father actually gives it to him. Try to imagine this for those of you who are kids, where your kid comes up to you and is like, yeah, you know, whatever you're going to give me in your will, like, I'm out of here. Would you just give that to me now? And actually following through with this, divesting, like whatever you have to divest to give them, breaking into your 401k and saying, okay, here. So with cash in hand, the younger son packs his bags, heads out, begins to live life. Younger son gives himself over to everything in the culture that he stepped, in, stepped into, spends his inheritance on everything broken and marred in the world. Now we're told that there is a severe famine struck the city and the surrounding countryside. In fact, the situation becomes so dire that the younger son takes a job working in a pig stable. He's so poor and hungry, he considers eating the slop that he uses to feed the pigs. Here is another example of something we just kind of brush over, like, oh, pigs, that was an interesting choice, Jesus. Like, no. To a Jewish audience who believed pigs were the epitome of unclean animals. You couldn't find yourself in a more disgraceful situation. Jesus is painting a pretty bleak scene. And then we read, he, he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. And he says, I will set out and go back to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And so before we move on, I want to be really clear. The story of the younger son is such a deeply shameful one. Jesus has crafted, like, for all of, like, the old salty, like, Gen Xers in the room or beyond, like, this is the most disrespectful millennial brat. 
was a joke. If you don't know this, our church is basically all millennials. So it's, it's just everyone's offensive. This is that image of like, are you serious? This is the story that is painted and pictured for these Pharisees, for these religious elite who have come to ask Jesus, why are you hanging out with who you're hanging out with? And then he begins to illustrate the, like a worst case scenario and a response to that that is, looks absolutely foolish. Character number two, the father. The father character in the story is a fool on the face of things. An absolute fool. What an idiot. If you were listening to the story for the first time, to see a father who would actually give over that money, but then actually take this son who disowned you and your family and spent your money and spent time with the pigs and probably aren't sure if you can trust the response that's coming, this reason for why they want to come back. What a fool. In light of my father's forgiveness, in light of my father's forgiveness, we ask, what will this younger son, how how will he respond? To a father who has done something absolutely extraordinary. There's so much to unpack here. First, the father dashes out of the house and down the road to embrace his wayward son. When we read, he saw him a long way off. This is a hint that the father doesn't really know why the younger son is returning home. The last time that they spoke, the younger son said he wished that his father was dead. For all the father knows, the younger son is returning to ask for more money. But the father doesn't seem to care about the son's motives. Doesn't seem to care about the son's motives. He's just coming home. What's been pointed out often in this text as well is in Jewish culture, men, especially men of status, which is what clearly Jesus is portraying in this God figure here, the father, they did not run. They did not run. These were like the dons. You don't see a don running. Other people run for you. It was considered undignified and childish, one scholar says, but the father does not care about this social decorum at all. The father didn't embrace and forgive his son within the privacy of his home. They're out in the open. I'm not sure how far we can take these aspects of the story, but it's so important that we dive into the context here because this seems like it's like a public scene to some degree. Whatever judgmental gazes that exist, those figures looming in the background of Rembrandt's paintings, The younger son begins his rehearsed apology. And he doesn't even reach the part about being a servant before he's interrupted by his father. And the father does what? The father just pours blessing out on him. The best robe, a ring, a pair of sandals. The best robe would have belonged to the father himself. The ring would have been the family's signet. The servants didn't wear sandals. These three pictures, the robe and the ring and the sandals, were a complete, hear this, reinstatement of sonship. These are bold, bold, bold gestures. And then the father orders the slaughter of the fattened calf, a prized piece of livestock. 
only reserved for the most epic of celebrations. Fat and calf would have produced enough meal for an entire town. Fathers drawing a line in the sand and inviting or maybe challenging everyone to welcome and forgive the younger son that's come in. Remember, this is a communal society. These, all these little details and backdrops here, backdrop is so vitally important for us because so often when I would hear the story, it was like happening, you know, in like an old country scene and nobody was around and it's totally normal that like a dad would just run out there and give him a hug and forgive him and yeah, let's just go have a meal. The implications here are public. This is a risk, just like love and forgiveness always are. The father in this story has to accept the reality that his younger son might not actually be truly repentant. He hit bottom. Maybe he just, you know, wants to get back on his feet, get some more money and run away again. I don't know. The father's risking the respect of the whole community for welcoming his sinful son home. So what does this say about the father? The series that we're in, the one we long for. The invitation that we've been extending throughout this teaching is looking at different facets, doctrines, visions of God that are presented to us in the scripture. And here's the word, beholding them. There's something beautiful that happens when we look upon perfect goodness and perfect love and perfect beauty. That suddenly all of the like lists of what you should do and shouldn't do and how you should act and what's more just, these things are important to some degree, but my goodness, they sort of begin to almost take care of themselves sometimes. It's like when we fix our eyes on just how good and just how wonderful, we talked about the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God the beauty of God. And today, we're, as we're talking about God the Father, and we're going through these three persons of the Trinity, we just thought it'd be appropriate to talk about God the Father who is our Father. <laughs> if this is the language that's given to us again and again and again, the language that Jesus used exclusively in the New Testament about God the Father, God the Father, our Father, our Father, if your Father is, if your Father is, what is it that he is inviting these people these followers of Jesus, the crowds that are getting this whole vision, the Gentiles who are the out group, who are being welcomed in. What, why is this so important that they gaze upon the God who is Father? We'll return to this in a minute. Going back to verse um, 19. When the younger son, when the younger son is preparing his speech, we get this insight into the script, into the story that he's telling himself, into the vision he has of what has happened. In verse 19, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's, that's the speech. And for all intents and purposes, on the surface of things, is he wrong? No. Dude, you violated every single social, like, faux pas. You've hurt deeply your own father. You've embarrassed him and the community. 
You've jacked up your life so royally. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm like, dang right. The younger brother is telling a story, a version of the story. And he heads home in absolute shame. And as he rehearses this speech, I wonder how convinced he really is that he is no longer worthy to be called his father's son. That is the story that he is telling. But for the younger son, there are two versions of the story. There is his version, and there is his father's version. There is his version, and there is his father's version. He has to choose which one he's going to live in, which one he will believe, which one he will trust. Come back to this in a moment. The older son. The party's in full swing. The DJ has been set up. The tent has been put up. The fattened calf slaughtered. The wine has been poured. If there is a part, one like a tender of the party or person who should be there that's not there. The older son who spent the day working in his father's fields who missed the whole dramatic return, and he notices the party, asks the servant what's going on. The servant gives him the update on what's happening, and the older son becomes what? Becomes what? Angry. He refuses to attend the celebration. He waits out in the darkness, and eventually his father comes out and begs him to join the party. He asks his eldest son why he won't come in, and the older brother replies, what? I've worked my tail off for you for years and you've never thrown a party for me and my friends like this. Before you get all judgy with the older brother, like, come on. How would you not respond like that? Maybe it was even in the most tender way. Like, Dad, really? This is what you do? Heartbroken. Angry. Frustrated. The older brother has lived his whole life set by the rules. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home you kill the fattened calf for him? Like the younger brother who's like, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Is the older brother in some way wrong? He's lived his whole life by these rules and principles. And his father, the man who he's devoted his life, has just broken broken the older son's rules. Does this make sense? I think that the frustration comes because there are rules in the way that things go. There are rules to our world. If you work hard, if you put in the effort, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you take care of things, if you devote your life to whatever it is, there will be a return the rules of, I think, how our world operates, 
how systems of thought operate, how our culture operates again and again across cultures is transactional. According to the rules, the younger son doesn't deserve the father's forgiveness. To the self-righteous, grace and mercy will always appear to be reckless and foolish. Right? Not only can the older brother not forgive the younger brother, he can't see past his own overinflated ego. And when we like, we know this, when we derive our worth and our value from our efforts and our obedience, we're also saying that the people who don't share our level of devotion are worth less than us. Is there anyone in your life who you see as less than because they ain't you? That might be the only message for you today that you need to take home. And then the line. Should have started with this line, but this is the line that I want to just invite us to fix our eyes on for the rest of the week, for the week ahead. The response from the father to the older son after he expresses his frustration. This is a word directly for the older son but clearly it's for both of them. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. My son, like, bring it down. I'm always with you. Everything I have is yours. We gotta celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother makes this critical mistake of assuming that he deserved what had been freely given to him. And so instead of gratitude, the older brother just reacts with entitlement. So while the father like runs to close the gap between himself and the younger son, the older son does what? He decides to keep his distance. The thing that jumps out to me about the Rembrandt is just how far away the older son is from the scene. Do you notice that the older son is a lot taller than the father? This is the patriarch. Any classical painting of what's going on here is gonna have the older son shrinking in light of the older one. But it's the father bending down to welcome home And it is the older son who stands at a distance, looking down upon the whole scene. To the people that Jesus is telling this story to, they are upset because Jesus is spending time with people like the younger brother. And for them, just like the older son, forgiveness is this transactional exchange. It's a power dynamic designed to balance the books but they do not yet understand that they just, this is not how the world works in God's economy. After all these years, I've been slaving away for you and you never, ever, ever, did I ever disobey your orders. He can't even say the brother's name. He's so frustrated. So much in so few words. So how does the older son describe this version of events? Slaving, slaving, slaving claims the father like has dealt like with his brother according to the wrong set of standards 
You see, the older brother is believing a story. He's believing a very different story about who he is. The older son hasn't been a slave. He's had everything the whole time. But this is the story he believes. The father hasn't been, he believing the father's been cheap with him. He's telling himself a story about what makes him good. And what makes him good is clearly the way in which he has performed and followed the rules. But what does the father do? He redefines fairness. It's not that his father hasn't been fair with him. It's that his father never set out to be fair in the first place. Grace and generosity are not fair. And this, in so many ways, is the essence of grace. The father sees the younger brother's return as just one more occasion to practice unfairness. It reminds me of this other story. There's this parable in Matthew 20 where it's a scene where God is like portrayed as a landowner. And we read about um, these uh, workers in the vineyard who worked hard all day, did everything that the, the landowner wanted them to do. And then there are these workers that were hired at about five in the afternoon and they receive the same amount of money as the workers who've been working all day. Unfair. They've been toiling all day in the sun and they got the same amount. And in fact, they were paid second. And so as they bring this like frustration to the landowner, in verse 13 we read, but he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarii? Like, I paid you exactly what I said I'd pay you. Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? I love this. I love this and I hate this. Man, I'm an oldest son. I have a justice complex. I want things done right. There is a right way things get done. If you want someone to smell out the unfairness in the room, I'm your guy. My wife and I like enjoy getting on the phone with people who are like, like telemarketers who are tr- clearly trying to swindle like older folks or folks that don't quite understand what's going on. And so they call us and they're like, oh, you called the wrong couple. Having a sense of right and wrong and justice are not bad things, but it's so important to see here and just these two stories and we could go on and on and on all afternoon that what the prodigal son story does is it wakes us up to the economy of God and to the true character of the Father. You're always with me and everything I have is yours. What is it to you if I do this? What is it to you if I do that? This love and generosity and this story that's being told here for both of these sons is critical 
Because every one of us, every single one of us is walking around with stories that we are telling about who we are and who God is. Every one of us is walking around with a narrative about their own worth, about where it comes from. Maybe you've never taken any time to consider it, but it's there. If that were to fall apart, how would you be? Just answer that question. That thing you really value, how people see you, your looks, your job, your feed, how obedient you've been. Maybe your identity's wrapped up in actually being the rebel. You're like, I'm like the prodigal Christian. (laughs) Whatever it is, we have these stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and who God is. And it's so fun. I think it's so fun to rehearse this line like it's the greatest mantra of all time the greatest prayer, the greatest centering bit of wisdom we could take. You're always with me. Everything I have is yours. You can reject it all you'd like. You can walk away. It's been said that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. You, You can say no to it. You cannot walk through the door. You cannot accept that you are loved by the God of the universe. You cannot accept that in Christ you are set free. You cannot accept that you've been adopted by God. You cannot say yes to that. You have that choice. And as you begin to say yes to that, what will begin to happen then actually is this unearthing of the brokenness and ways that we need to grow in the lists. But I love the book of Ephesians. If you've ever gone through the book of Ephesians, if you're new to the whole Bible, this is a letter to a church in Ephesus, not unlike ours. And the writer Paul, who sometimes gets this bad rap because he gets all the lists of things you need to work on. What I love about the book of Ephesians is that he spends the first three chapters just telling this church, this is who you are. Telling these people you're loved, redeemed, holy. This is what I've done for you. This is how I see you. To say yes to Jesus is to say yes to the God who runs up the road to you. And to say yes to Jesus and to his way of love is to receive the words. Look, everything I have is yours, but we gotta throw a party for this person who you're right, doesn't deserve any of it. And you know what? You don't either. I love you. You can deal with that or not, but it will affect all of you who struggle with judgment. It will, it will, it will jack all of you. It has jacked me up again and again and again with those of us who love to hold a good grudge. For those of us who continue to demonize, who the idea of what Brad just said, loving your enemies or praying for your enemies is cute in theory and not gonna happen in reality because you don't know what they did. This is the radical, reckless call of the love of God. Everything I have is yours, which raises another question like, what does God have? Glad you asked. A little, real, just really quick stroll, and we're gonna close here. In the Sermon on the Mount, again and again, I don't have time to go through all these, my gosh. But go through the Sermon on the Mount and look through. This is the kingdom manifesto, Jesus' announcement of what heaven on earth is gonna look like and does look like, and we begin to step in now. And he keeps using Father in heaven, Father in heaven, Father in heaven. 
He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He's got so much love, he will invite you into the radical love of loving the other. When you pray, don't keep babbling on like the pagans. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need. What does he have? He has abundance. He knows what you need. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body or what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns. Can any one of you, by worrying at a single day to your life, he says, your heavenly Father feeds and clothes and takes care of them. What does he have? Everything I have is yours. What does the Father have for you? Abundance and a non-anxious life. There's brokenness in the world. It's gonna be really hard to undo all the narratives and stories that you tell, but you can keep returning back. I'm always with him. Everything I have have is, is in him. I can find it in him. Everything he has is mine. Don't worry about your clothes. See how the flowers of the field grow. Do they labor or spin? Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow and thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? The pagans run after all this stuff. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. Or, or which one of you, um, if your son asks for bread, will give you a stone, or if he asks for fish, will give you a snake? If then, though you're broken, you're evil, know, and you know how to give some good gifts to your kids, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good gifts to those who ask for him? Again and again and again, it's abundance. Son, everything I have is yours. What does he have? Oh my gosh, so much. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Your heavenly Father It gives you the release to be able to forgive again and again and again. Your heavenly father will open the door for you to reach out to the person who doesn't deserve it. And folks and friends who feel like you have just run so far away from anything related to God, your heavenly father is just waiting for you to come home. In fact, that's actually not really accurate, right? In this story here, he's not waiting for you to come home. He's running up the road. He sees you, and he's not sure of your motives, but he's, he's coming for you. And so to become a follower of Jesus, to have the altar call moment, if you've ever been around a church, to raise your hand and say, I'm in, to like sign up for the revolution, to sign up for the movement of Jesus, is simply to say yes. Y- y- yes, I trust. It says in Romans, trust. He died on the cross. Trust that he's loved. Trust that I'm forgiven. Trust that he rose again. Trust that I can join him in the renewal of all things, which begins in me. I can trust that I can live inside of his lordship. This is the gospel that he's Lord. He's Lord. He's king. He's dad. He's father. You don't have to. It's always an invitation again and again and again. The same invitation to the older son to accept the love and economy of the Father is the invitation that extends to the younger, which is come home. You're loved, redeemed, free. Lest you think this is too good to be true. (laughs) One more passage, Jeremiah 3. 
This is one of the handful of Old Testament passages that speak to God as a father. God speaking to Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. They've forgotten the Lord. They won't listen to him. And yet the Lord, by way of Jeremiah, persists to warn them and invite the prodigal children of Israel back home. And this story, the son does not return. We read, the Lord said, how I would set among you Sons, I would give you this pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father. I thought you would call me my father. It would not turn from following me. Here's why I love this. This, we see Jesus really is revealing the heart of God that's always been there. Always been there. Back in the Old Testament, we hear the cry of the father. He wants to be called dad. And this is not in response to people repenting. It's not like you finally got your, your ish together. He finally got him together. He finally got it all together. Now I can come to you. Now I can forgive you. No, this is simply the inclination of his heart. I thought you'd call me father. I thought you'd call me father. The younger son will awake in his old bedroom and he will be faced with a decision. In light of my father's forgiveness, what type of man will I become? If you're up for it, no pressure, would you just close your eyes with me? If you sense any bit of identity with the younger son right now, and you're sitting in there after the party, and you're saying like, oh my gosh, if that's what God's like, if that's what the divine is like, abundant love and forgiveness and grace, if that's the starting point for the transformation of my soul and my heart, if that's the starting point, And you're sitting in there, you're hearing the tent get torn down. In light of my father's forgiveness, what type of man will I become? What type of daughter will I become? What type of woman will I become? And then the older son will awake with his brother in the next room and he'll have a different decision to make, a different question that would arise in light of my father's forgiveness of my little bro. What type of person will I become? The challenge, the story of the two sons isn't really about the brothers at all. The parable invites us onto the path of trusting what the Father says about us. Trusting what the Father has done before the foundations of the world. Henry Nouwen says, here is the God I want to believe in. A Father who from the beginning of creation has stretched out his arms in merciful blessing, never forcing himself on anyone but waiting 
never letting his arms drop down in despair, but always hoping that his children will return so that he can speak words of love to them and let his tired arms rest on their shoulder. A story like this has the capacity to wake us, wake us to the love of God. Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you wake us, Lord, to the heart of the Father, a revelation, Lord, of the Father's love.